We're going to continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9 this morning. We're going to begin with verse 14. But if you can find your place there, and then after you have located that, turn to John's Gospel with me, to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. We've been focusing in these last few weeks on what it means to be a follower of Christ We've been looking at the various miracles that Matthew has presented to us in chapters 8 and 9. So far that we've read in chapter 9, there are more miracles that will be shown to be uh, things that Matthew focused on in the remainder of this chapter. One of the things I want to remind us of in our study time today is the fact that when Jesus came, he tells us, in earlier chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 of verse, uh, of verse 17 of chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, says that Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And here in this passage, we're going to be looking at something that is very important to us. The idea of the contrast between grace and law. And the reason I ask you to turn to John's Gospel is because in chapter 1, John tells us something of importance with regard to both of those. He says in verse 17 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But again, it's not that Jesus has come to eliminate or destroy the law. He's come to fulfill the law. He says elsewhere that not one dot or tittle will be removed from the law. And that phrase, dot or tittle, is reference to the markings in the Hebrew letters that identify specific vowel sounds. In Jesus' day, they had already developed that marking system and they called them, and it's translated in our English, as dots and tittles. But they are markings in the Hebrew alphabet Again, to differentiate from one vowel sound to another because there are no actual vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's very helpful to know how they would have pronounced that word and that is the only way that we can easily do it in our days by looking at those dots and tittles. And I say that only to emphasize the fact that Jesus has said not even one of those will be removed with regard to the law. How important was the law to Jesus? It was tremendously important and it should be for us as well. The law is good, Paul tells us, and it's a quote from the book of Psalms. And Paul emphasizes the fact that the law is a schoolmaster. It's given for a particular reason, and that reason is simply that we might understand our inability to be perfect as God says we must be perfect, our inability to be holy as God's Word says we must be holy. It's the law that gives us the understanding that it's impossible under the law for us to attain to that kind of level of perfection and holiness. That's where grace comes in. And so grace versus law, again, is what we'll be focusing on today through the reading of this portion that we're looking at this morning in Matthew's Gospel. If you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 9, keep in mind that the first few verses in chapter 9 gave us a couple of miracles that were presented. And then Matthew spoke of his own calling by the Lord Jesus when he was seated at the tax booth 
And Jesus came along and said, follow me. And Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. I submit to you that though that's not a physical miracle, it is a miracle of great proportion nonetheless, because it is a miracle of a spiritual sense in which God came and chose an individual to follow him. And that individual responded by doing just that. That's a miracle. Matthew was a very wealthy man. And it's not likely that many people would have responded in that way unless the Lord had drawn him or her to himself. That's still the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way, today. It's the Holy Spirit that draws all men to the Father. I can't convince people to come to Christ. Neither can you. But the Holy Spirit does. And that's what He intends to do in these last days, to draw many souls to Himself, pointing everyone to Jesus Christ. That's the job of the Spirit of God. It tells us very clearly that it's the Spirit of God who draws all men to Himself. It's the Spirit of God who convicts men of sin and righteousness and judgment. It is the Spirit of God that makes it so that people can understand the Word of God because the Word of God has to be spiritually discerned. No natural man can understand the things of the God. Paul tells us that also in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is. But wherever it is that he speaks it, he speaks it with authority. No man, no woman can come to God from a natural point of view. There has to be the act and the moving of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Well, Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority to prove himself to be the Messiah, the one that God had sent. And it is in the proving of his authority that is fulfillment of Isaiah and other prophets that spoke of the fact that the one whom God would send is going to come with such power as is demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ in these passages. That's why Matthew has taken the time to give all of these various miracles to show that it is, in fact, fulfillment of what Isaiah in particular had said in chapter 35 of the great book of Isaiah, that he would come and he would heal the sick, he would open the eyes of the blind, he would open the ears of the deaf, he would raise the dead, and this is what we're going to be looking at in our study this morning. But I want to focus again on this concept that stands out in all of this, where there's a contrast given to us with regard to grace and the law. So read with me beginning at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He goes on to say in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. 
Keep in mind, as we looked last week in this chapter, we found that Matthew had decided to follow Jesus, and he invited Jesus and his other disciples to come to a feast at his house, although Matthew doesn't tell us it's at his house. The other gospel writers do. But in that time that they are together in Matthew's house, the Pharisees had come and observed something about what Jesus was doing. He was eating with tax collectors, sinners. He was eating with people that were obviously the lowest of the lowest class of people that could ever be upon the face of the earth. And the Pharisees were questioning why in the world would this holy man of God, they kind of sarcastically would say, was eating with such sinners as this. And you remember Jesus' answer. It's found in verse 13. He says, And go and learn what this means, Jesus said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His purpose in coming was to call sinners to repentance. And he said that sarcastically to those who thought themselves to be righteous ones. So he says, I haven't called you guys who think yourself already there, and you're not. But I've called sinners to repentance so that they might enter into the kingdom. It goes back to the very thing that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount. When in the Beatitudes he talked about the fact that there were things that they should expect as followers of Christ. And he ended that portion of the Beatitudes with a statement that said, in order for you to enter into the kingdom, you must be more righteous than even the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. That's a tall order. He went on to to explain how that is to happen in the ones who were deciding to follow Christ. It requires, requires obedience. It requires commitment. It requires faith in the one whom God the Father has sent. So here we find in this passage, not only are the Pharisees questioning what he's doing, but also the disciples of John the Baptist are questioning what he's not doing. The disciples of John the Baptist, and there apparently were many, were people who were still under the law of God, trying to obey the command of their master John, who had said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were zealous Jews, who realized that John was giving them a message with regard to the fact that they were not following after God the way they should. And there was a great deal of movement in that day that John was ministering to many people, and they began to follow John and listen to his teachings and realize that they had fallen short of God's expectation. But they didn't know all that they needed to understand yet. They were still observing the law. They were still very, very careful to do whatever it was that they needed to do to please God if they were able to. And among those things that they thought they were needing to do was to fast, to give up a portion of a day to exclude the pleasures of consuming food, fasting, whether it was all day or a portion of the day, whether it was food or something else that they were abstaining from, the point was they determined that it was the right thing to do for them to fast regularly. 
Now, fasting is only required by the Lord God through the writings of Moses on one single day of the year. There were no other requirements by God to fast as far as the people of Israel were concerned. That day was a day of atonement. It was a solemn feast and it was a day of fasting once a year where they repented of their sins in the previous 12 months of the year so they could start over with a fresh, clean slate. But they fasted on that one day. That was God's requirement. So what's the idea that is being presented by the disciples of John? That you should fast often. Why? Because the traditions that were handed down to them from the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, throughout the ages emphasize the need to fast often. In the time of Jesus, it was common for the Pharisees and scribes, for instance, to fast twice a week. Remember, in one of the things that Jesus gave as an example of righteous versus unrighteous men was a Pharisee who had come to God in the temple grounds and saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not one of those people like this tax gatherer next to me. I thank you that I'm not a woman. I thank you that I tithe often. And I thank you, Lord God, that I fast twice a week. Meanwhile, the poor tax collector that he had referred to was beating his chest and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me. I'm not worthy that I should lift my head to you, praise, in prayer, in thanksgiving. But he did. And God said, That is the one who will go home blessed of the Lord. Because God recognizes it's not the fasting, it's not the tithing, it's not the things that you do, it's the things that you believe. Grace has come. Grace does what the law could not do. When Jesus answered those disciples of John, He's reminding them of this. And He gives some examples to emphasize what it is that He is doing with regard to the obligation that they thought was an obligation, but from Jesus' point of view, it was a burden. It was not necessary. And again, His response to them can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's identifying himself as a bridegroom. And if you're familiar with the Jewish customs of a wedding feast, you would realize then that there are times of mourning, there are times of sacrifice, that there are times of great joy. And one of the times of great joy is during a wedding feast. And we still think of that same sort of thing when we enjoy the weddings of a relative or a friend and they have the wedding ceremony and then they go to the reception and it's a joyful time and people are really exci excited about the newlyweds and having a beautiful celebration of this great thing that has taken place in their lives. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's the bridegroom 
And while he's with them, there's no reason for them to be mourning. There's no reason for them to be sorrowful because he is there. And they should recognize it as like in the Jewish wedding feast, a joyful thing that they should be experiencing. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom and my disciples are the friends, the ones who have gathered together at the wedding feast and they are experiencing that same great joy that you would experience during a wedding feast in the Jewish custom. So he says, while the bridegroom was with them, they shouldn't be mourning, they should be excited, they should be joyful. And then he ends that verse 15 with this statement. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm not going to be around all that much longer. This is really, and it's subtle, but it's a reference to his death on the cross. Jesus recognized it and wanted to convey this truth to his disciples. I'm not going to be around much longer because I've got to go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. Jesus knew that, and it is here that he subtly indicates that this time of great joy is going to indeed come to an end. Now, he doesn't elaborate here, but he's going to, as we move forward, as we look at this very remarkable set of events that are taking place in the life of Jesus, we will come to the place where he actually says very, very specifically, I'm going to be taken at the hands of evil men. They will crucify me and I will raise again on the third day. They didn't understand that. It went over their heads. That's just a matter of fact that is unfortunately given to us in Matthew's Gospel. But here, he's beginning to indicate to them that that's going to happen but gives no further indication as to how or when. But he goes on to say, again in verse 16, another example. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Now, when I was a kid, long, long time ago, our clothes wore out and holes began to form in some of the jeans that we would wear or the shirts. The material was not quite as, well, good quality perhaps as it might be now, although I'm not really sure that that's necessarily the case. But we didn't buy our jeans with holes already in them like they do now. I can't understand that. They go to the store and pay abundant, excessive amounts of money for jeans that have holes in them already. We bought our pants at a much lower price and we wore them out until they had holes and we got the same result, but we actually had to pay far less to get that result, yet they decide now today is a better way of handling the process. Well, in Jesus' day, a robe was a very precious commodity. They took care of their clothing. And when a robe would tear, as Jesus points out, they would put a patch on that robe because they needed to wear it and they didn't want to go around with the obvious tear because it was an offense to themselves and to others, so they patched those things with other cloth material. 
that might be available to them. But he pointed out something of great importance. You don't take new cloth and patch the old garment with that new cloth. And the reason for that is simple. In that day, they didn't pre-shrink their cloth. When they put the patch on, if it's a new cloth that hasn't ever been pre-shrunk, and they wash that garment, that new patch is going to shrink, and the stitches will tear the old garment even more. Because the old garment already has shrunk, and it's pretty easy to understand that the new patch, because of its shrinking, is going to pull on those stitches and make the tear worse than it was originally. That's his point. He goes on to say a similar thing with regard to wine. He says in verse 17, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So he's saying the same thing here with regard to the picture that he wants to present in a simple process of storing the wine that they would have to drink in those days. New wine is unfermented grape juice. And what Jesus is saying, since they didn't have plastic bottles in those days, they used wine skins, animal skins, a goat skin perhaps, or lamb skins. And those skins would, when they were first used, be very flexible. And that's necessary because new wine poured into new wine skins would allow for the wine to ferment, and when the wine ferments, the gases will expand the wine skin, and the new skins are flexible enough to handle that expansion. But if you put new wine into an old wine skin that has already been stretched to its limit, and that fermentation process begins, that old wine skin can't contain that expansion process, and it will burst the wine skin, and all of that will be lost. That's his point. New wine, new wineskins. Can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't put a new cloth attached to an old garment. What's the point? The point is this. The Pharisees had come to complain to him about what he was doing, eating with tax gatherers, eating with sinners. They thought that that was something that the law condemned. John's disciples came to him and said, you should be doing what we're doing. But since you're not, we question, why is that? And again, it was based on oldness, the traditions, versus newness, the things that were being introduced by the Lord Jesus. In one, it was the law, the Old Testament commandments. On the other side, it was grace. So it is with the garment, and so it is with the wine bottle. It really is a beautiful example in both of those of grace versus law, revival versus reformation. The law was not given for any of us to obey because none of us can. It was given to teach us that we cannot. Moses gave the law. The law was important and still is. It sets standards for us. 
But grace does what the law could not do. Grace gives liberty. Law brings legalism. Do you have any preference to one of those above the other? Would you rather have liberty or would you rather be legally bound? See, that's what grace is. Liberty. Law is legalism. The remainder of the miracles that Jesus performs in this section of Matthew that we're looking at will continue to focus on those differences from a spiritual point of view. Physically, healings take place. Deliverance takes place. It's a remarkable thing that God is allowing us to see in these passages that Matthew has written for our benefit. The first one has to do with a man who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, Matthew doesn't give us all the details that the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Matthew gives us a very brief description of these events. Mark and Luke give us more details, so it's helpful to read those particular accounts to fill in the gap. It is there in Mark and Luke that we find this man's name is Jairus. And he's a ruler of the synagogue. That means that he was a person who was in charge of everything in the synagogue with regard to the maintenance of the synagogue, the keeping of the scrolls, the way that they conducted their services. He would invite certain rabbis to speak. He would be the one who was in charge of the services. And he comes, it tells us, to Jesus. Now this apparently happened immediately after or short time after the time at Matthew's house. So chronologically, it seems to be very much in the line with those events that had just preceded that we looked at earlier. But he says in verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Take note of the fact. This guy is a Jewish ruler of a synagogue and he comes to Jesus He has to have some knowledge of who Jesus is and recognizes that this one is indeed the Messiah because he worships him. Make no mistake about it, Jesus received the worship of people who came to him in such a way as this. And only God should be worshipped. So let that speak to you with regard to who it is that we're speaking of when we say Jesus is Lord. But this ruler comes to Jesus and he asks something of him. It tells us again in verse 18, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now in the other gospel accounts, as Jairus, his name is Jairus, as he was approaching Jesus, his daughter was apparently still alive, barely. And he was so very concerned, he knew that the only way for her to be healed would be to seek out this Jesus who had been doing so many miraculous things in that region. And he knew without a doubt that this Jesus could heal his daughter. But as he's coming toward Jesus, one of his servants or some of his servants come to him and say, don't bother the master anymore, your daughter's dead. So when 
Jesus is now confronted in Matthew's gospel. The record that Matthew gives is that she's already dead when Jairus begins to talk to him. There's no difference in the accounts, just that Matthew is condensing all of that information into this very brief description. Jesus arose then after he had been told that his daughter had died and the request was made that Jesus would come and lay his hand on her and she would live. Jesus knew this man had faith in his ability to do even that. Now up until this time, we have no record of Jesus raising anybody from the dead. But it's plain in the Scriptures that the Messiah would come with that power. So again, this is another demonstration of the power of Jesus over death, as He demonstrated already, His power over sin, and His power over disease, and His power over nature. Here He's going to express His power over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Paul would write, As far as Jesus was concerned, death has no power. But Jairus needed to have the confidence in Jesus' ability to raise even his daughter from the dead. His disciples didn't even believe that at this point. So it says in verse 19, So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now it tells us in the other gospel that three of the disciples went into Jairus' house with Jesus. But he says Jesus went. And in verse 20, Matthew tells us, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. Now here we have a delay in Jesus' ability to respond to Jairus' great need. His daughter had just died, and now Jesus, on his way, is interrupted by this woman. And again, the other gospel records give us more detail. This woman, again, had been ill for 12 years. What the other gospel records give us that Matthew doesn't is that she realized that this one could be the solution to her problems. They tell us that she had been to physicians who could do nothing. Her life was hopeless. She was a defiled woman because she had a continuous flow of blood hemorrhaging from her body. And the hemorrhaging from her body made her unclean according to the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, it was given specifically that a woman who was experiencing her monthly cycle would be unclean for a period of seven days until that was done. And then when she was finished with that, then she'd go back to the temple. But until she was cleansed of her uncleanness, she couldn't fellowship with other believers. She was defiled. Nobody could touch her. Nobody could touch her clothing. Nobody could be in her house to sit on her furniture because that would make them defiled. 
So it was a very strict law for the woman to make sure that there was no defilement spread among the people of God. Here she is for 12 solid years with a flow of blood that she can't stop and she's completely unclean. She is not, just like a leper, able to fellowship with other believers, other Jews. She couldn't go to temple to worship God. But she's in this crowd secretly now. She comes behind Jesus and she reaches down to touch just the hem of his garment, thinking that that would be an opportunity for her that she believed would result in healing of her infirmity. That's great faith. But all of that time that Jesus now stops and says, Who touched me? The gospel, other gospel records tell us that. And the disciples said, Lord, this is a huge crowd around you. What do you mean, who touched you? And Jesus said something important that are related to this story in Matthew that the other gospel records give us for detail. His response, who touched me? Well, Lord, everybody is touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? And he said, no, I felt virtue come out of me. Power in the original language. Dunamos. I felt a measure of power that left me and ministered to another person. Now, he didn't do it himself. It was done through the faith of this woman. Power was transmitted from him to her by virtue of the fact that she believed. Jesus didn't have to turn and say, let me lay my hands on you. He didn't have to look into her eyes and say, do you believe? He just realized that it had already taken place. It's not that he was surprised by this, by the way, but he wanted his disciples to realize that something had happened. Something miraculous had taken place. But in the meantime, Jairus is wondering, wait, my daughter, what about my daughter? Uh, Can we hurry up? My my daughter's now dead. Lord, the, the time is necessary for us to spend no more time here. This is wrong. This is a hindrance to the thing that I'm hoping for. But Jesus had turned to Jairus, realizing the anxiety in Jairus' heart. And he said, Jairus, fear not. Your daughter will be whole. Just believe. This one woman who had been bleeding for so long, 12 years, he says, be of good cheer. Daughter. That's a precious word to this woman. Just like the man who was paralyzed on a pallet that the the Lord healed in the house. Remember, he was brought down from the roof by his friends. And the Lord said, be of good cheer, son, your sins are forgiven. Here, he tells this woman, be of good cheer, daughter. And I emphasize son and daughter because from Jesus' perspective, They were indeed children to him. Precious. Important. Be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. That is such a remarkable statement. 
your faith. When Jesus was, remember earlier on in chapter 8, confronted by the centurion, a Roman soldier, he had faith, so much faith, that he believed something that his disciples could never have believed. I don't need you to go into my house because that would be wrong. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at his great faith. Never had he seen such great faith in all of Israel. His faith, the centurion's faith, resulted in the healing of his servant. We have so many examples in the Word of God of Jesus healing the sick. Many, many people were healed by the Lord Jesus. But not all of them were healed in the same way. And we've discussed that in the past. And I just want to point out again that we cannot put our Lord God in a box and say He's got to do it this way or He's got to do it that way. All we can say is He's got to do it because I believe in His ability to do so. But yet that has limitations as well. It's evident that Jesus did not heal everybody that came to Him or that were in His presence who were sick. Now it tells us in the Gospel records that He healed everyone who did come to Him. But if you look at the record clearly, there are situations where some people were not healed. The many people who were sick are on the pool of Siloam when that poor person on a bed who couldn't enter into the water when the water was stirred by the angels, Jesus healed him, but there were many who were not healed. There was another man who later on in the book of Acts was healed at the prompting of Peter and John, who sat at the gate begging. He couldn't walk. And Peter's response when he came to him, and by the way, that was the eastern gate, and Jesus would have entered into that eastern gate many times. Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. Rise up and walk. Did the blind or the crippled man have faith in Jesus to do that? Or was it Peter's faith that caused the healing? All that Peter tells us is, It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that this man is now standing before you whole when he presented the truth of the healing to the Pharisees and scribes who questioned it. The point is this. Jesus is able. He is God. And He wants us to come by faith, believing that He is able. We're told in the book of James, if there are any sick among you, let him or her call the elders of the church to come and lay hands on that sick person and the prayer of faith will heal him. Well, those are good things to remember and needful things for us to consider if we're going to believe in our ability of our God to heal the sick. And I believe He does still heal sick people today. But we've seen some not be healed. I've seen some miracles in my 50 or so years of walking with the Lord now, but I do not ever want people to think that I submit to the idea that you can just name it and claim it. 
That's faith in faith. I want my faith to be in my Lord Jesus Christ. That He is not only able to do what I ask Him to do, and that He will do those things if it is His will for that to be done. But sometimes His will isn't our will, or our will isn't His will, and how are we going to know the difference? We can only go to the Lord trusting that He knows best. And I'm glad of that. That takes a lot of pressure off of me. I'll still invite people to come and pray for the healing of their bodies when they desire that. I want that to be the thing that we all would be willing to do. Come before the Lord and minister to one another with the hope that the Lord will indeed heal our bodies. That's grace. If we were under law, we couldn't expect that because the law can't do what grace is able to do. So we base our faith upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to do those things that we ask according to His will. This woman believed and she was healed. Jairus expressed great faith in Jesus' ability to raise his daughter from the dead. It hasn't happened yet, but he knows that Jesus is able. And what is spoken next is amazing to me. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, depart, give place, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. In some of the translations, they laughed him to scorn. What he's referring to here is the fact that in that day, it was very common for, especially the wealthy, if somebody in the family died, they would hire professional wailers, flute players. And they would come and gather around the building where the dead person was, or inside the house in this case, and they would play their flutes and the women would wail. They were professionals at doing this, expressing great grief and sorrow on behalf of the family. And that's what's taking place already in Jairus' home. They were there in the house, and Jesus comes in with his disciples, Jairus and his wife, and they are experiencing all of this that is going on in the house. The child is indeed dead. And Jesus says, make room, get out of here, for the girl's not dead, she's just sleeping. They laughed him to scorn. They said, hey, we are professionals. We have observed this body is a dead person. There's no other explanation. They knew this one was indeed dead. They were going to bury her by the end of the day. They were not convinced at what Jesus said. She's just sleeping. Oh, come on. But what Jesus was saying is not that she wasn't dead in the sense of her body was no longer breathing, the brain was no longer functioning, the heart was no longer beating. That was obvious. But what he's saying is the body was asleep. In the New Testament, we find that word sleep with regard to death many, many different times. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he had told his disciples before they came to the town where Lazarus was indeed laying in the tomb already for four days, he told his disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. And they thought, oh, that's good. His disease has left him. He's, he's going to recover. And finally, Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand what I mean by sleep. In that case, as in this case, Lazarus was dead. But he used the term sleeping in the sense that the body was no longer functioning. The spirit has left the body. It's not the spirit that is dead. It is the physical body that is dead. 
or just sleeping. Paul uses that as well to describe for us the experience of the Christian once the Christian breathes his or her last. The body goes into the grave, the body sleeps, but not the spirit. And there are many who talk about spirit sleep. It's not at all biblical. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. The soul, the spirit are in the Lord's presence of those who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's no question when you die, you go into the presence of the Lord. He's in heaven and you go there to be with him in the spirit. There's going to come a day when all those who have died before us, if we are all still alive when that day comes, they will come with him on that day when the trumpet blast is sounded in the clouds, the people who have gone on before us, their bodies will be raised from the graves and reunited with their spirits and they will be glorified. And then we who are alive and caught up will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and we will all be changed as well into glorified bodies. But the spirit of those who have passed on will be united once again with their glorified bodies and then we will be clothed upon with eternal bodies that last eternally. It's simple. Don't make it any more complicated than it is. The body is asleep. Jesus said, she's not dead, she's asleep. Why? Because he knew he was going to restore the spirit to that body and she would live again. Oh, verse 25 says, But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And again, referring to Mark and Luke to fill in the gap. This girl was 12 years old. Same number of years that the woman had been suffering with the issue of blood. The woman suffering from the issue of blood was dying. The young girl lived a life of joy and wonderful blessing to her parents until she became sick. There's such a remarkable comparison that is made between this little girl and this woman, both of whom were healed in the same series of events during the same period of time, but by different means. So Jesus rose her from the dead by taking her hand. In the other Gospels again, he said, Taditakum, Aramaic for little girl, arise. Little girl. Remember he talked to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's a different word, but it's even more meaningful with regard to this child. Oh, precious little girl. Arise. And she did. What a miracle. The law could not have done that. But grace does. Verse 26 says, And the report of this went out into all that land. I can well imagine. Can you imagine being in that situation, experiencing such a great miracle as this, and not saying anything about it? Can you imagine keeping your mouth quiet over such an unbelievable event as the raising of a 12-year-old girl from the dead? The word went forth. It went like wildfire all around the region. But not only that, 
The next story also gives us an indication of the spreading of the good news. It has to do with two men who were blind. And in this we find that because of grace we have deliverance versus death. Sight versus blindness. Grace versus law. Verse 27 says, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he came into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. Take note of the fact that he touched their eyes. I don't think he had to. But he did that. He didn't have to touch the woman. The woman touched him. He never uses the same method twice. But these two men received their sight. Why? Because of grace. The law could not have done it. Their eyes were open, verse 30 says. And Jesus sternly warned them. Listen, he sternly warned them saying, See that no one knows it. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. No problem. I've been blind for however long I've been blind, but I'm now now able to see. And people are going to come to me and say, wow, what happened to you? You can see. And they're going to say, oh, no, I'm still blind. That ain't going to happen. They're going to be able to go and find a job and work for a living. And the... Employer is going to say, weren't you blind just last week? How is this? Oh, I, I wasn't blind. I, I, I had something in my eye. I couldn't see well, but I could see. Now I can see perfectly well. Will you hire me? No, they didn't do that. They were excited about what God had done for them. Remember the demoniac? Earlier on in chapter 9, we saw the demons were taken and cast into the swine. And Jesus had told the demoniac, Look, you've got to stay here and tell all your friends. Don't think that that happened in a limited sort of way. Because the Word of God tells us very clearly that the whole region found out about it. Because the demoniac was delivered and he spoke about it. Jairus must have spoken about the deliverance of his daughter from death. The woman who had a 12-year issue of blood, now able to go into the temple, able to worship, able to have friends in her home, able to touch and kiss and embrace. You don't think for a moment, do you, that she didn't say anything about this thing that happened in her life? These two blind men, and it tells us, when they departed, verse 31, they spread the news about him in all that country. Grace does this, not the law. The last miracle that is given to us is in verse 32, and I want to try to get through this as well as I can without keeping you too awfully long. But it's important, and I hope you don't mind. It says in verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitude marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in all Israel. 
But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Listen, the Pharisees have been observing all of what Jesus has been doing. And now they're starting to formulate a means by which they can communicate their disbelief to others by saying, He's doing this by the devil. This is the first developing of the opposition of the Pharisees to all of what Jesus was doing. Do you think for a moment that that stopped the Word of God about the miracles that had been taking place from spreading? No, it did not. I submit to you that today, miracles have been taking place. Every one of you has experienced the miracle of salvation. And I, the only one here that thinks it's a good idea for us to let them know that something of a great miracle has happened in your life and in mine, I don't think so. They couldn't keep from telling people. I believe it's right for us to feel the same way about the miracle that has taken place in your life and in mine. Lastly, I want to share these one last thoughts. Verse 35 says, When Jesus went about all the cities and villages, He taught in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Grace is demonstrated in His compassion. The law cannot do that. Under the law, they were burdens. And it tells us right there, they were burdened, they were weary, they were tired of the same old, same old. And he's there expressing his compassion on all of those who were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And I'm reminded when I read that, that the law is a burdensome thing. It causes weariness. And if you look at Matthew's Gospel later on in chapter 11, verse 28, it tells us there, Come to Me, Jesus speaking, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. In chapter 23, verse 4 tells us, For they bind, speaking of the Pharisees, heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The Pharisees were under the law. And they were trying to obligate everybody that they confronted with the idea that the law condemns. The law provides nothing but a heavy load. They were weary. Jesus' compassion was expressed in this passage. And He's still compassionate for all of us today. My friends, We should not be weary. We should not be burdened. 
by all of the difficulties that we face. We should not be burdened by all of the troubles in the world around us. And there are many, many things that are happening in the world, whether it's the war in Ukraine, the threat of nuclear annihilation by Russia or North Korea or Iran or China. There is plenty to be worried about. There's plenty to be weary of soul with regard to the things that are going on in the world around us. The woke situation in this nation of ours, CRT, the racial strife, the sins of the nation in abortions, right or wrong, people think that abortion is okay, but God says, nah, it's not okay. They turn what is good into evil and what is evil into good. These are very, very troublesome times, my friends, and this is why we need to trust in the Word of God who says, through His Son, Jesus Christ, take my yoke upon you. Take it upon you now, for my load is light, not heavy. And you can rest in that. You don't need to be weary of all the things that are so troublesome to the rest of the world. You have light. You have life. You have truth. You have grace. The rest of the world has law. And what grace can do, the law cannot do. Let us be mindful of these truths as we leave from this place today and go out into the world to recognize the fact that the time is short and people need to hear what God has done for you.